Jeff Stanick with Figured Out Baseball. We've got a really good Figured Out Baseball podcast today for you. We're being joined by Bobby Valentine. Uh, you know him as a former Major League manager, um, as well as a former Major League player. He's currently the athletic director at Sacred Heart University, a Division One school in Connecticut. Um, and I'd like to uh, just go through a, a very quick bio on Bobby before we jump into questions with him so you're a little more familiar just with maybe a, a little bit of his background if you don't know a lot of it. He uh, was born in Stanford, Connecticut, was drafted out of high school, uh, taken fifth overall in 1968 by the Los Angeles Dodgers, made his Major League debut a year later in 1969 with the Dodgers as a 19-year-old. Um, he last played in the big leagues in 1979 with the Mariners. He managed in the Major Leagues, managed the Rangers, the Mets, and the Red Sox. He also managed uh, a team in Japan's. Uh, NPB in the Pacific League in 1995 and was back there uh, for the, is it the Chiba Latte Marines? Is that, did I say that right? Good job, Jeff. Yeah, it's a long day, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we could call it Latte because that's a fun drink for everyone, yeah. right? Yeah. He was, and he managed that team in 1995 and again from 2004 to 2009. His last season in the big leagues was 2012 with the Red Sox, and he uh, took the job at Sacred Heart University in 2013, February 2013. That's where he's been since. He was watching a basketball game before we jumped on this podcast. Um, so, Bobby, I just want to first of all thank you for taking the time to be on this podcast with us. Hey Jeff, my pleasure. I've heard nothing but good things about uh, about you and your podcast, and I'm excited about uh, joining you. So let's rock and roll for those listeners. <laughs> so first of all, I, I like to typically start with something in, in a normal podcast. I start with something from the bio that stands out, and obviously you've got a, a very lengthy bio that we didn't need to get into much. I think most people are going to recognize your name and especially your picture on the podcast. But I would actually like to ask you about just to start with uh, your bio. Start with your time in Japan. Two different stints in Japan, and the first one was after managing, if I'm not mistaken, you went from the Rangers to Japan for a year and then back to the States, uh, but then back to Japan from 20, to 2004 to 2009. Would you mind talking a little bit about your time there and just what drew you back there and why you decided to spend so long managing uh, baseball in Japan as opposed to being here where you clearly had job opportunities? Well, yeah. Um... So I managed seven years in, in Texas, and then uh, I did manage a year in AAA for the New York Mets in Norfolk. While I was in Norfolk, there happened to be a world-class um, Japanese baseball personality who was an all-star player, manager, and general manager, who was uh, given the task of scouring the ball fields of America and coming home with the first uh, non-Japanese manager to manage the Chivalote Marines. And so uh, uh, I was managing in AAA. Uh, this gentleman was going from Major League Park to Minor League Park, talking, watching, talking about, talking with the whole nine yards. And in 95, he offered me the job to be the first American ever. And I was flattered, and I went over, and I had a two-year contract. And uh, I did something that I, I really shouldn't have done, but when the Mets called and asked me if I could get out of my contract because they were going to uh, offer me the job to manage the Mets, I decided to get out of my contract and come back to New York and, and manage the Mets. And uh, it was a pretty well 
well laid plan and uh we came in second place in japan the year i was there uh i i really worked my butt off i got to know the players the league the fans i uh created a new culture where the fans were more involved with the players and they kind of liked it and uh, i kind of jumped ship on them and um when i got back to new york uh, the Mets said they were only kidding, and they were offered, they'd offer me my AAA job back if I wanted it. Um, and so I took the AAA job back mainly because I had no other job. Uh, it was paying $60,000, and I left a job that was paying $650,000. And uh, I tried to explain it to my family as a bad career move. But uh, lo and behold, when I got back to, to uh, Norfolk, I only had to stay there until August, and in August, um, the Mets fired Dallas Green and hired me, and I went on a seven-year tenure with them. Uh, one day fired me. I was having lunch in New York two weeks later uh, in a pretty good restaurant in downtown Manhattan, and uh, my buddy was consoling me and telling me everything. Great, great skies are going to clear up, put on a happy face. And uh, the owner of my Japanese team came walking over the table. He coincidentally was having lunch in the same place. And he said, I've heard the news. Would you consider coming back to Japan? And I said, you've got a deal. And I went back and uh, we won a Japan and Asian championship my second year back. And it was it was just a match made in heaven. I loved it. Uh, I learned to be a minority. Uh, I learned to speak a new language. Um, I learned to appreciate things that were different than what I thought were things that were uh, in stone and in concrete as far as how the game of baseball is viewed. And um, I wouldn't have traded in that experience in for anything in the world. What are the odds that, that uh, <laughs> the owner of that team would be in the same restaurant as you? That's amazing. Absolutely I think incredible. it's amazing, and it's not like he's a New York, uh, you know, he's an international business guy, Lote. You've probably seen the ads behind the Yankee games when they do those hologram of ads. It's L-O-T-T-E. It's a $40 billion family-owned or. Uh, operation where they use their baseball team in Japan and their baseball team in Korea, Korea as basically an advertising vehicle of the parent company. That's amazing. Now, did your family live with you in Japan in either of those stints or both of those uh, stints? Uh, never full-time. Um, you know, it, it became a... Um, diminishing uh, stay routine. Uh, I think the first time it was probably three months. The second time it was two months. The third year, it might have been a month. By the fifth year, it was uh, twice a year and, and for the playoffs. So, um, you know, I was working there. It was 24-7. It, was, uh, it was a different culture. Uh, my wife was nationally showing collies and uh, agility and was winning national championships. And to be away from uh, her dogs um, was not a good was, – let's put it this way. It was easier for her to be away from her husband than it was <laughs> for her to be away from her dogs. And I understood it totally. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty amazing just uh, to be able to spend that much time in a different – different country different culture i'm sure was was very cool for you now i'm also interested to ask you uh about jumping into 
college athletics and jumping into the, a, a position as an athletic director after spending so long managing you know, major league teams, minor league teams, managing overseas, and then to jump into being an athletic director. How difficult was it for you, Bobby, to step off the field, um, you know, being with players every day, being a guy that's, that's managing and has your thumb uh, on, on the team, uh, you know, for so long on, on a team, to step away from that, step off the field, what was that transition like for you? Well, I was, I was ready for the transition. Uh, you know, I had made the break basically, and was uh, kind of all in on a broadcasting career. I was uh, worked my way up to, uh, you know, uh, ESPN's top job. I was doing their Sunday night game of the week as with Carl Ravitch and then with Dan Schulman and with Oral Hershiser and John Crook and Tim Kirchin, and uh, I was making a couple million dollars, and I was uh, riding, riding the new wave of a new career on a pretty high note and then uh, uh, Larry Lacchino who I had known for quite a year I mean quite some time uh, reached out to me and said uh, you know the general manager left in the middle of the night and uh, they decided to change the guy who was leading the team and if uh, I would come up and, and manage the Boston Red Sox and um you know, I was real drunk when I made that decision uh, to go there, and uh, I wish I was even drunker because um, it, it probably would have been something I, I would have turned down. But I did. I went. I went back after a couple, three years, I guess, of of working my butt off to learn the broadcast business and and be pretty good at it. Um, and then I then I stepped away and went up to Boston and. I had seven months up in Boston, or however long it was, and uh, realized that uh, it really wasn't the place that I needed nor wanted to be uh, for for the next ten year of my life. And then, what happened that the the Sacred Heart job, athletic director job, came yeah. open even to pique your interest? Well, uh, it was just a phone call, you know, uh, and I didn't make it. I answered it, and. Um, Sacred Heart was at, at a place in time where, um, you know, they they needed to kind of rebrand themselves. They were making a push at becoming something other than the little commuter school that a lot of people knew them as for quite a while. They had put up a few new buildings. Their uh, admissions were uh, starting to climb, and uh, campus uh, and the a blank campus, and I had nothing, knew nothing about uh, being an AD. I'm not sure I could even spell AD at the time, um, but I said I'd give it a whirl for a couple weeks, and I, I stayed uh, for eight years now. <laughs> That's very cool. Um, what do you like about being an athletic director at this point? Well, you know, there's there's a lot of satisfaction in, in um Watching people develop, watching, uh, you know, with 33 uh, Division One teams um, and 19 of them being female sports and, and 14 being male sports and, and having uh, over 28 uh, head coaches and, and twice that many assistant coaches and a 1,000 student athletes, you know, you have an opportunity to watch a lot of 
uh, situations, and you have you happen to have the opportunity to help the growth of a lot of different people and a, do- a lot of different uh, aspects of, of life. And uh, I think that that's uh, been the most rewarding uh, situation to not only see see athletes come and graduate and smile when they leave but uh, also see coaches go through the ups and downs of um, of this uh, calendar year of a, of a sports team and watch facilities that um, need to be improved improved watch dollars come into the department from fundraising events uh, it's been an all encompassing ride and i've enjoyed uh, most everything that um, that i've been associated with at sacred heart now that being said it might be time for for another change because um the longest i think i ever did anything in one place was eight years, and I'm approaching that eight-year span. <laughs> I know what that's like as a as a college former college baseball coach. Moving just be, kind of becomes a part of what you're doing. But I, I don't believe that if you end up leaving Sacred Heart, I'm sure it won't be under the same circumstances you left most of your other jobs. Hopefully, this will be because something else comes up. Uh, <laughs> I did leave the broadcasting at my own will. Yes. And, uh, you know, when I, when I was a player, uh, I like to say that I chose not to continue playing. Now, that was because no one offered me a contract, <laughs> but it still was my will to um, not play anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, what about when you go to watch baseball games at Sacred Heart? Do you find yourself like thinking along with the coaches and, and like watching a move they make and just like kind of kind of cringing and saying, "Oh my gosh, what are you guys doing?" And talking to them after the game, like, "Hey guys, you need to. <laughs> I think you need to do a little bit more of this, a little bit less of that." Do you ever talk to the baseball coaches about that or have the itch to? Uh no. You know, with my baseball coaches as well as all the other coaches, I tell them that, um, you know, I want them to think of me like uh, continental breakfast when you check into a hotel. If you want it, I'm there. So I I don't hardly ever, uh, I would say in, in the uh, span, I don't think I ever approached a coach uh, after a game or uh, what I recognize the situation uh, to call it to the coach's attention. But most coaches, if they know that I'm there, they know that I'm watching and they know that uh, I'm there after watching if they need to talk about something. And some of those conversations have been fantastic. That's what you'd like as a coach, obviously, from your administration uh, just to be there when you need it and not to be breathing down their neck and not that you would be that kind of guy but I'm sure that they know that uh, that you've done some things and, and you've had some success at, at some pretty high levels and uh, I, I don't know if that maybe at the beginning uh, when a coach first begins that might be more intimidating than than later on but but I think that the way that you sounds like you're handling it is probably the best case scenario for uh, these coaches do you ever get an itch to coach again whether it's at the college level or go back into pro ball does that is that ever something that strikes you or do you ever wake up in the morning and feel like god I kind of missed that no, um, you know, the grind of it is, is just too much for me at this time of my life. And I understand the grind. I lived it. Uh, I, I loved it. And uh, I, I couldn't embrace it 
now as a 70 year old guy now i do go by my sports academy where there's hundreds of thousands of young people who are trying to improve whatever sport it is they're working on and uh, you know i i spread myself thin there too uh, if if anybody needs anything out there and once in a while i'll throw batting practice once in a while so i'll say hey bobby what do you think about this pitch or what do you think about this swing and um, you know once they ask then it's their fault that I take up 10 minutes of their life. But, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I, I enjoy that coaching aspect. But, again, I've coached a lot of coaches and coached them how to coach, and I enjoy watching them do it. Is that part of your job as an athletic director is to coach coaches on how to do their job, how to coach? Like, not, not necessarily on-field stuff, but do you ever just have conversations or, or take time to pull a coach aside and just talk to them about how to manage their players, how to manage things like playing time expectations or anything else? I know that pro ball is different than college athletics in a lot of ways, but in a lot of ways it isn't. Is that part of what you consider to be your job as the AD there? Uh, yeah, in a more general sense, though, I don't. I don't want you to think that I'm solving the problems of of who starts on Friday night, or um, you know, of, of how long it's going to take to recover from an injury, or even uh, what color uniforms they should wear on their Saturday afternoon battle. Uh, but generally, uh, in the aspect of of filling the needs that they should be filling. You know, that these athletes come and they're on a journey and uh, they kind of know where they are and they hope they know where they want to go. And it's, you know, the coach's job to help get them there. And, you know, I, I, I try to, and it's hard as hell, but I try to instill in, a, in the coaches that the players really don't don't care what you know until they know that you care and that if you show them that you care, then... Um, you don't have to worry about telling them what you know. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a real weird dynamic uh, in, in today's sports world, but in, in, I think forever in, in all the sports worlds. And, and different people had different ways of, of showing and teaching that. Of course, I was a young player at 18 years old, left Stanford, Connecticut, went to Ogden, Utah as a number one draft of the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers, and I'm going to play rookie ball, and the guy that meets me at the airport is Tommy Lasorda. Uh, I'll be flying out tomorrow back to L.A., and his funeral will be on Tuesday, and I'll be doing the eulogy for a guy that I met 52 years ago who remained a very close uh, friend, mentor, and father-like person to me, but he had a unique way of showing that he cared. And and then, even if he said, uh, you know, that uh, you swing at the high ball with your hands in a certain position, and you knew that he was incorrect, it didn't matter because what mattered was that he cared. You mentioned Tommy Lasorda, and that's it. I'm sure that you have quite a laundry list of big names that that you know that you've that you played with, that you played under, that you coached. But Bobby, if you had to kind of pick a couple people from your journey, who were some of the biggest, most important mentors that you had, whether it be as a player or as a manager uh, along the way? Who are, who are some names that really meant a lot to you through your journey? Well, of course, Tommy Lasorda, he, he was that guy. I had a, 
High school coach Rob Parenti and a Babe Ruth League coach before him, John Charculerino, they were all very instrumental in my development. Uh, once I started to develop as a man and, and later as a coach and a manager, uh, you know, Tommy was still there, but I got to work, uh, you know, with Davey Johnson. I was his third base coach for three and a half years. He let, let me into his inner sanctum of uh, press conferences and lineups and all of that stuff. You know, I played for Joe Torrey before I, I retired. He be, remained a very good friend of mine. And Joe was always... Um, uh, there with a with a great smile and a, and, a, and an arm to put around my shoulder if necessary. You know, I played for a lot of other Hall of Fame managers that I didn't really get anything from. Walt Alston, Dick Williams. Uh, um, there was probably, I think, one more in there. And uh, I was kind of not a very big piece in their puzzle. And so um, uh, they obviously weren't a very big piece in mine. Um, but, you know, they, these guys, along with Lou Lamorello, who was uh, a guy who went out on uh, the limb and when he was 24 years old, took a 17-year-old kid out of, out of high school after my junior year and let me start and lead off uh, for his Cape Cod baseball team um, in 1967. And uh, we've remained friends, and he's always been there to pick up the phone when uh, I had that question in the middle of the night. And so uh, I've been lucky. I've been very fortunate not only have great family, but also uh, connect with people along the way who um, cared enough about me to lead me in the right direction. It's amazing you've had so many relationships that have lasted for so long. And to mention <laughs> your high school coach, your Babe Ruth coach, <laughs> Uh, amazing. Most guys that have done what you've done would have forgotten about those guys a long time ago. That's pretty amazing, in my in my opinion. Um, if, if you had to, at this point, if you had the ear of a young coach, a young manager, or even a a, um, a guy that was coming through, maybe as a, as a professional player and, and wanted to get into coaching at some point, wasn't quite there yet. If you had some advice to give, uh, again, whether it's a pro or college coach what is some advice that you might give a young guy that's kind of just getting started like this is this is something you definitely don't want to forget this is going to be pretty important for you to have success as you're going along well yeah you obviously have to love what you're doing um but you also have to be good at it you know and 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 sometimes guys will follow that passion only because they love what what that thing is they're doing but they never take the time to figure out what it is that it takes to be good at what you're doing i think the real successful people um do what they're really good at and then learn to love it and then some people are lucky enough to love what they're doing and, and be good at it uh if you know what i mean so I, I always try to make sure that there's not only um, passion and commitment to being a coach, but that they understand that coaching is all about giving and that to be good at coaching, you have to be a good giver. And, you know, some people come to grips in their life um, that, you know, their mother was a little better giver than they are. And they're not quite as good at 
at this part of the formula. And so they find out what they are good at and then they do that. Um, so I, I try to stress that on, on anyone, not only coaching, on anyone who's deciding or trying to decide, because how could you decide when you're young and the world is in front of you and you've had so little experience at life? How do you determine what you really want to do? You usually gravitate those things that you're good at. Uh, and, and if they do that and people continue to gravitate forward in that direction, I, I'm sure that they'll be successful. That's an interesting take that I don't know that I've heard somebody say before to do what you're good at and learn to love it. Um, usually it's, it's the other way around, do what you love and, and find a way to make it work. Now, is that, is that something, Bobby, that you take into the hiring process now as an athletic director when you're interviewing coaches for a certain, for, for head coaching positions? Do you try to, to dig and ask questions to find out if they are that type of person who, you know, who, who is a giver and who, who understands what they're good at? Um, and maybe even what they're not good at? Isn't, isn't that one of the secrets to hiring? Yes. Um, uh, of course, when when you're looking for a certain skill set and you're doing it in interview process, um, it's extremely hard to find out if that person that you're hiring is going to actually be that, that round peg that fits in a round hole or if that person and you become complicit in trying to put a, that square peg in a round hole only because this person's pretty cool and I like them and, and, and I, I really like the energy and, and it looks like that they, they really they really love what they're doing, but you forget that idea if, if they're going to be good at what they're doing. And to be good at it, believe me, it takes passion and commitment, but it also just takes a skill and, you know, some of those skill sets. You know, my compliance people don't have to uh, be great givers. You know, they need to be uh, great rule rule followers and, and people who, who understand how to stay inside um, the lane, you know, um, so, so there's different skill sets for sure. But we were, we were, we were talking about that. The coach has to really enjoy giving. You mentioned now a couple times about being good at what you do. What does that mean to you as a college coach? And I'm asking this as an athletic director because I think that we have a lot of people listening to this who are in, who are either in college athletics and maybe would like to get another job or get a head job someday, or people that would like to get into college coaching at some point. To to be good, does that what is what all what all is uh, what what comprises being good at your job? Is it is it the winning? Is it you know keeping uh, you know getting your kids to graduate and having a good team GPA? Is it, what exactly goes into you finding out if someone's good at their job? What does that mean to you? Yeah. Okay. So winning, getting a good GPA, graduating those are all things that kind of happen at the end of the game. And uh, in order to to win at the end of the game, there's a process. There are things that have to happen during the game that you win and the game that you lose, the practice that you that you have, and the practice that gets rained out. There are there's a process that needs to take place in order to get to where you're going. And in order to do that, you you have to have the skill set to be able to inform 
people, those that you're coaching, um, what they need to be informed on. You, you must be skilled in, um, in your language, all right, so that you can uh, inform those who need to be informed. And then you have to understand about the instruction part of information, that you not only have to have the information, but you have to be able to deliver it. Sometimes it's in physical instruction, but sometimes it's in visual and audio instruction because some guys and gals learn better with their eyes and some learn better with their ears but you have to learn how to instruct the individual player on your team and then it's paramount that you learn to inspire them that you learn to make them want to do it again Okay, and that's all it is, is that you're inspiring them, whatever they do, whatever sport they play, whatever click it is that you want them to click. You have to be the person that is inspiring them to want to do it again. And, um, you know, that stuff's tough. <laughs> that's all that's all tough it takes time to get the information it takes time to understand the individual and how they need to be instructed and then it takes time to inspire them to do it again because you don't really get rewarded when they do it again and many times, as Tommy Lasorda used to say, as he would be throwing hours on end of batting practice to us in 100-degree weather in, in uh, the minor leagues or in winter ball or wherever we might have been, he would conclude the practice very often by saying, I know I made you guys better today, and I know there won't be one of you who sent me a fruit basket on my birthday. <laughs> but tomorrow we're going to come out here again, and I'm going to try to make you better. And, you know, that's that essence of giving, that you're giving only to give, not to get, that you're not going to get the fruit bas- basket on your on your birthday. And that comes with the territory. So um, it, it, it's it's a wonderful world, that coaching thing. Uh, and the, the reward that you get uh, and the accolade that you get is that you made someone better uh, than they were when you got them. And when you learn to appreciate uh, the fact that their swing is better, their feelings better, their pitch is better, their makeup is better, their social skills are better, their confidence is better. If you were involved in that process of them getting better, you are rewarded. And um, uh, a lot of coaches fall by the wayside because that's just not enough for them. Bobby, I know we're running out of time, uh, but I'd like to ask you one more question if you have if you have a few more minutes. If I don't uh, lose you here in a bad cell area, because I do have to get home. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'd just like to know, in in your opinion, you've you've obviously come a long, long way, and I'm sure that you have you you've learned a lot through your coaching through the years of coaching and, and managing where you've been. What has made Bobby Valentine successful. What what has made you who you are today? Well, I, I 
challenges and that um, when there's something that's presented, um, I take it upon myself to give my all to solve the situation. And um, I've gotten a lot of um, credence out of the fact that um, when, when I give a good effort, I usually get pretty good results. And, uh, you know, when you're building that dash that's on your tombstone, that's that dash between the time you were born and the time that you die, you like that that dash to be as as full as possible. And uh, I think the fact that Hells Bells, as you mentioned, I, I was uh, fired uh, when I was 16 years old working in a men's store. I was released as a major league player. I was fired a couple, three times as a major league manager. Uh, uh, I was divorced. I was broke twice. And uh, I'm 70 years old today. I drive a pretty good car. I feel like uh, I've, I've kind of gotten to the close to the top of the hill and I'm not really ready to go down the other side so um, uh, I, I just think the fact that uh, I have been resilient and that I, I have met the challenge uh, quite often in my life and, and uh, that's something that I'm I think I'm allowed to stick my chest out out of I would have to agree. This is Bobby Valentine, everybody. He's currently the athletic director at Sacred Heart University. You know him probably as a major league player, major league manager. Uh, Bobby, I just want to say thank you so much for being on this podcast, for taking the time out of your day to be